Welcome to Season 2, Episode 36 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is David Leo Rice. David is a writer, and he's a host of the Wake Island podcast. His new novel, The New House, is out now through Whiskey Tip Press. He joins me from his home in Brooklyn. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks. Thanks for having me. How is life over in New York? Life's going well. Things are good. Yeah, my mother's here for her birthday. It was actually yesterday. Um, So it was like a big family reunion of uh, my brother from Los Angeles and people from other areas uh, converged on the city to surprise her. Uh, which was great. We took her out to dinner and just spent some time together. She grew up in um, Great Neck, kind of just outside of Brooklyn on Long Island, uh, and hadn't been back to her hometown in probably, I don't know, 25 years. So she and her siblings went up there yesterday and had a little, you know, communed with the old house, which is totally different now. But returning to their roots, I think, was important to them. And it's like, you know, something I found very sweet about that. And yeah, things are good. It's nice to, you know, summer has come and things are are in full bloom strangely that's my father's birthday as well really june 19th there you go i have a long list of like bizarre coincidences but i feel like the more i notice them and hear about them the less they surprise the the more it almost becomes the rule like things like this just happen all the time in a way that i certainly can't explain but seems to be empirically true about the world (laughs) that exact process um is the essence of my understanding of like the role of the supernatural or like the inexplicable in the world that it always intrudes when you don't expect it or at certain moments and then if you interrogate it it goes away Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so there's always like the deeper you go trying to prove the existence of the supernatural the more you either disprove it or start kind of making stuff up you know or start becoming like more and more of a zealot to try to prove it on the other hand if you ignore even the possibility of coincidences like that, then that becomes its own form of zealotry because coincidences do seem to crop up. So I feel like the trick for me is to like, how do you acknowledge them, but then also uh, allow for the magic to quickly disappear. (laughs) (laughs) For your day job in New York, you teach. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Uh, Yeah. You know, I think probably typical of of a lot of writers in at least in big cities, uh, you know, I teach at a variety of different places. Um, I started out actually teaching at the Gotham Writers Workshop, which is kind of a long running, just kind of its own institution. It's kind of uh, people of all walks of life take courses there, which is kind of great. It's a really interesting cross section of New York of just like, you know, extremely young people, extremely old people, people, you know, for whom English isn't necessarily their first language, people with like some lifelong project they've been working on forever, people who you know, never thought about writing and like someone got it for them as a gift certificate. You know, it's like an odd mixture of people. Uh, so I really enjoyed doing that. And then after I did my MFA at the new school. So after that, I started teaching there um, at the new school and at Parsons, which is basically the art school of the new school. I mean, it's a kind of like tentacular organization, but like essentially that that's how they're related. Uh, so I teach at Parsons now. And I also started teaching um, just this year at FIT, the Fashion Institute. 
of technology, which is part of the state system, SUNY, uh, which is interesting. I mean, it's kind of, I've always enjoyed crossing lines or like uh, cross-pollinating between like art world and writing world. So like when I was in college, you know, I think I always wanted to be a writer, but I did a lot of animation courses. Um, and then I TA'd in that animation studio after college. And now, you know, being a writer, I still like teaching art students and sort of talking about art, maybe not, not more than teaching writers necessarily, but there's something interesting to me about um, not having everyone coming from the same place necessarily. You co-host the Wake Island podcast. I've been getting really into it. You chat with a whole lot of diverse people about really wide ranging topics. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your podcast and how you got into podcasting? Absolutely. Um, thanks for listening too. Uh, so it was started by my friend, Paul, um, Paul K. He goes by, who is really his project. He started it, I think, early in the pandemic, you know, when there was a kind of lull of like, just everybody being at home and not knowing how long it was going to go on for. Uh, and he interviewed, he has a background in both, actually speaking of cross-pollinating between art and literature, this is another example of that. Uh, he has a background both in photography and writing. Um, so in the earlier episodes, he interviewed a combination basically of photographers and, and writers of different kinds. And then I just started listening to, listening to it. I lived in Kansas for the winter of the pandemic. My wife's from Kansas and we went kind of back to her hometown. Actually, we ended up in the next town over, but her home area. And we just rented a little house that was kind of like, I don't know, it was a counter life in, in a very, in a way that I'm now nostalgic for. But I remember that I started listening to Wake Island just as a fan at that time. Um, and there were some people, I had a book coming out with 1111 Press, and there were some people, at least um, Grant Meyerhofer, who's someone who I, I've admired for a long time, who also had a book with 1111, um, who was on Wake Island. So I think that's the first episode I listened to. And then, yeah, I just became a fan. And then when, the, when that book, uh, which is called Drifter, a story collection, was coming out, I wrote to Paul just to ask if I could come on. Um, so I did. And, and, you know, I think that episode went well and we hit it off and just enjoyed talking. And then it turned out we both lived in New York. Uh, so we got together after that. And then slowly but surely, I think first he was like, you know, I'm interviewing, I think we were talking about serial killers. And he said, well, I'm interviewing the serial killer historian. Do you want to co-host that? Uh, so I said, sure. And we did that. And then we did another one. And then uh, this must have been like last spring. Yeah, spring of 2021. Uh, we kind of started co-hosting together in, in a more consistent way. And we did a kind of wild road trip at that time from Austin to Minneapolis, where 1111 is, is based. And we went through just some sort of like ominous sites of American history. Like we went to the site of the Waco standoff in Texas and just absorbed some of the atmosphere there. I think Paul and I both are interested in atmosphere, you know, both as, as a literary possibility and also in terms of actual places and just like soaking up you know the feeling and the the mood of places uh so we went to waco we went to oklahoma city uh, passed back through kansas where my in-laws are and then you know on and on from there but i think we bonded over that feeling and then yeah we've just been co-hosting since then and uh try to have you know people who exist at some kind of nexus between art politics and just contemporary like mood or or you know atmosphere in the sense of like a zeitgeist or a cultural atmosphere i do highly recommend it and one of the most recent episodes i listened to was on the zodiac killer right right exactly with this writer uh jarrett kobeck 
who I love. I think all of his stuff is really interesting. And he's someone who's a real, uh, who found a way to turn research into a very specific kind of art form. You know, and a lot of his books are about controversial or misunderstood or just kind of lost individuals. So he has a book about Muhammad Atta, um, who, who was a big part of 9-11. He has a book about the rapper um, Tentacion. He has a few other ones. And then he has this uh, two book project about Zodiac. But I think in all of them, he's really, yeah, he's just very smart about drawing himself into a kind of obsessive headspace, which channels the obsessive headspace of his subjects. It's almost like a kind of performance art as writing in a way that I find extremely appealing. Yeah, so that's the latest one. Let's talk about your writing. You're pretty prolific. You've got a heap of books out there. Do you want to tell us how you got into writing? I think it's, I have another friend who I do these dream sharing events with and who I talk to about dreams and talk with him to other people about dreams. And something that he always says in terms of the question of like, why do we dream at all? Is the sense that either the waking world is not enough for us, right? Though even, you know, you see small children just long to hear stories and that, you know, they fantasize about toys and, you know, secret worlds in their, wherever they live. And yeah, that there's some part of us that wants to imagine that there's more mystery or more magic or even more fear in the world than there necessarily is. And at the same time, you might also say the world, it's not that it isn't enough for us, it's that it is more than it appears to be. So I think even as like a very small child, I felt basically that, that there was more to it, that there had to be, that there were these kind of intimations or like sense that, you know, maybe in that cave in the woods, there's, you know, witches hiding out, or maybe, you know, my neighbors are really aliens or stuff that probably a lot of kids think about. But I think early on, I took to writing as a way to feel like my inner world was not just like rotting on the vine. You know, I think I've always had a deep fear that my thoughts were for nothing. And, and I felt like if I could write it down and like make something, especially if anyone else would look at it, then my thoughts would be for something. And, and I found that very reassuring and then also very productive. You know, I think that this is probably like the next phase, which was maybe more when I was a teenager, but I started to think that writing wasn't only a way to write down the thoughts you had, but was a kind of laboratory to actually start cultivating more thoughts and that you could think of things through writing, you know, through beginning a story uh, or even beginning the kind of endless novel that a lot of like teenagers begin, I think, uh, that you could think of things through that process that you wouldn't have thought of just ideating in your own head, you know? And once I realized that, then I was like, then I was sold. And I was like, okay, this is, something I should just keep doing as, as much as I possibly can. Let's move on to your new book, The New House. It's loosely about a Jewish family who are living on the edge of society. They're religious fanatics, and they have a son called Jacob, who is your protagonist in the story. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your book and particularly about your protagonist, Jacob? Yeah. It's funny that I was talking to someone else about the book, and he said basically it's a bar mitzvah story <laughs> in a way that... <laughs> That hadn't even exactly occurred to me. I mean, it's definitely a coming of age story, but it's about this this boy named Jacob who is 12, you know, going on 13. Uh, and I think it's really about, you know, a search for belonging and a fear that that search will rob you of your individuality. 
you know, it's the classic, you know, it's a very Jewish idea, I think, of the classic, uh, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member, you know, which I think is a term or phrase coined by Groucho Marx, a kind of classic American Jewish figure. Uh, but it's really, you know, it's this question of what is the dignity or glory in being an outsider and truly living on the fringes of society versus what is the burden and maybe the almost suicidal dimension of committing yourself to that? And therefore, is there a kind of alternative or even greater beauty in trying to join, you know, trying to join on your own terms, which I think really is for me, the fundamental question of art versus religion, right? Because I think in some sense, you know, and I'm interested in how they relate to each other more than I am in how they're opposites. Right. So for me, like it's most most interesting if I can say art as a form of religion or religion as a form of art, rather than saying you have to choose one or the other. Right. But I think the way that the characters in the book think about it is. Is it possible to make something that you believe has literal supernatural meaning or is actually in connection with, you know, some kind of divine order, but also commodify it so that other people, you know, strangers in the world, let's say, can buy it and sell it and talk about it and admire it and all these other possibly more venal, but also possibly uh, necessary like grounding aspects of, you know, the art world, so to speak. Uh, is there a way that those things can harmonize rather than be in this kind of grueling battle against each other? And, and the answer might be no, <laughs> right? But the question of the book is, is that at, at root? One of the things I found really interesting about your book is that normally we see stories like this about people living on the edge of society in fringe groups and cults. They're normally about fundamentalist Christians or maybe Muslims perhaps, but this story is about Jews and about uh, Judaism and about observance and things like that. Was there something that prompted you to write this story uh, specifically about Judaism? Uh, I mean, just my own background, being Jewish and, and thinking about whether the Jewish story, at least in America of, you know, but I think around the world of, you know, to assimilate or not, whether that story is kind of a larger story, which I think it is, right? And I think also in terms of Christianity, I grew up in Northampton, Massachusetts, you know, which is like the heart of old New England. It's where Jonathan Edwards, who is almost like the first fundamentalist American, you know, super preacher, like famous preacher, uh, it's where he preached all of his famous sermons of uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God and all of these things that have become classics. And so I think as a kid, I absorbed this like heavy Protestant, you know, Anglo-Christian weight and, and kind of just, you know, speaking of atmosphere, I could feel that atmosphere growing up in Northampton. And my sense of being Jewish within that uh, caused just a lot of friction in a way that made me more self-reflective, and I think in a positive way, but a sense of like, who am I in this scheme of things? You know what I mean? And sort of like, what is the order of this like deep Protestantism, which in a sense felt like the essence of American thought, you know, am I an outsider to it or am I an avatar of it in my own way? You know, and I think like my parents had both moved to this town, so we didn't have any roots there at all. And I've since left that town. So, I mean, maybe I'll return, but for the moment, you know, it's like a one generation stop. Uh, so I think that interested me a lot too, of this sense of 
you know, roaming throughout America looking for, at least the way they call it in the book, you know, the new Jerusalem, which is the kind of promised end of wandering, which in the politics of the book, you know, has to not be Israel, right? The idea of Israel as a kind of like military state. You know, I was certainly raised with the sense that was something to be very afraid of and very ashamed of to see Jews, you know, turning into Nazis. At least that's the way I, I would see it as, as a kid. I, you know, I know it's more complicated than that, but that was the sort of mythos that I was raised with. And so the question is like, you know, it almost creates a kind of extreme American optimism in the feeling of it's like this or nothing, right? It's like, this is the last chance. This is the last new world. And so like, we have to make it work here somehow. And yet also, I think like the essence of, of the American story is to just keep wandering and to keep seeking a new frontier and a new, you know, a new sunset. Uh, so I wanted to combine those ideas in this book, which sort of builds a tension of wandering versus putting down roots, which correlates in terms of art uh, to this idea of like endless revision and kind of just keeping your hands like in the in the mix of matter, the way the sort of cult-like beliefs of especially the father in this family put it, right? So the father in the family is very obsessed with what he calls the demiurge, uh, which exists throughout, including Christian traditions, but a lot of different religious traditions. But the way the father means it here is something that, that I really took from Bruno Schultz, uh, which I think will be one of my top 10 books. Um, but this sense of like a restless, unceasingly, active creative spirit that just exists in the universe and that humans can embody but the idea is that the demiurge is never never finished right so it's not evil the way it is in some gnostic christian traditions but it's also not benevolent in the sense that there's no perfection that it's striving toward and it doesn't really you know doesn't love humans right it doesn't sort of have doesn't require any form of virtue it just wants to keep working and just keep making stuff and like rebuilding it and destroying it and building it again it's kind of like constant flux as the only goodness and that's sort of how the father in the family talks about art and therefore for him the art world the way he talks about it um which buys and sells finished works is evil right or is sacrilegious against the idea of the demiurge which just wants to like keep the ink from ever drying or keep the clay from ever drying um, because if it dries then it's like you know it's like musical chairs when the music stops it's like this is where you are like there's no more flux there's no more dance there's no more possibility that maybe in the next town we'll find the new jerusalem you know if you say the music's over then it's like you're stuck where you are you know and for me thinking about the american story that's the tension of sort of, you know, is the romance to just always move on and just keep wandering? Or is there actually a deeper romance in saying, uh, I'm going to stake my claim here, wherever that is, and try to make the best of it, even though the possibility that there's something better will always sort of eat away at me. Um, I don't know. So those are some of the thoughts I was thinking about in terms of this like extreme religiosity. And, and also in terms of the Paradise, I think it's a very Jewish paradox that trying to leave Judaism, or at least like trying to renounce the parts of you that are Jewish, is itself one of the most Jewish things you can do. Right. So you see that throughout Philip Roth, you see it through um, Isaac Babel, 
uh, Isaac Page of a Singer, you know, a, a lot of these writers, Kafka even, there's always this tension between can I like overcome myself and stop feeling like an outsider or stop feeling like, uh, like I don't belong anywhere. But at least in the politics of the book, it's like, well, that's, then you end up with you know, a military state like Israel, right? So, so the book is very uh, determined to resist the pull towards stasis. One of the things that draws Jacob away from his cultish family is the art world. And he enters the art world in a pretty interesting kind of way. Do you want to tell us a bit more about how Jacob enters the art world in your book? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in terms of my own, like the way that I started getting involved with the book was about a, a little while ago now, maybe in 2015, I became very interested in Joseph Cornell. Uh, I'd, I'd always liked his work, but I became more, like I started doing more research about him at that time. And he was someone who had this perfect, in a way, he represented to me the best of both worlds at being an insider and an outsider. Right. So he was someone who lived his whole life on the beautifully named uh, Utopia Parkway in Queens and sort of never, never really left the city. I think he went to boarding school in New Hampshire for like one semester and was expelled and then came home and lived with his mother and, and his brother basically his entire life, but became this kind of art world celebrity. Right. And he started um, making what he calls shadow boxes, which are these actual boxes. They'd be like cigar boxes or shoe boxes. Uh, filled with different kinds of objects that he assembled from like dime stores and toy stores and uh, tag sales, just, you know, wherever he could find trinkets. And, you know, he loved maps and little, uh, not exactly antiques, but just old kind of cast off stuff. He would recombine into his own private world. And then he started to actually gain traction in like the early surrealist era, you know, and he was at the MoMA a lot and he met people like Bunuel and Dali and he was a little bit of a known person. He dated uh, Yayoi Kusama at one point. So he was not, a, he was friends with Tony Curtis. Like, so there's some way in which he became part of this kind of perhaps desirable or enviable like inner circle at the moment while remaining a genuinely eccentric and, and kind of like odd person who seemed, uh, to exist on the cusp between taking his worlds literally versus commodifying his world into a kind of metaphor, which I think in order to be like a swimming in the waters of like the professional art world, you have to be able to do, right? So I don't know that that figure along, you know, another outside, you know, everybody is interested in Henry Darger, for example, or the writer Robert Valser, or, you know, certain people who just have this outside quality, but who are not crazy, or at least not in the sense of being like illegible to other people, you know, who, who are kind of doing something that articulates a common language that is understandable by people who don't know them. That, that's what's fascinating to me. And the character of Jacob, you know, I wanted to make into like a nascent version of that, you know? So in terms of how he actually gets in, into the art world in the book, he has this quality, which again is like this idea of the demiurge of recombining dead matter it's a little bit like a golem myth too i mean there, you know a lot of these these uh mythic strains go into like deep you know medieval jewish thought uh and, and other traditions too but i was interested in in golem stories and he starts nailing and screwing and gluing different objects to a dead dog which he calls a belmer which uh, you know he's sort of absorbed from his parents after the artist hans belmer who is 
forgot if he was Swiss or Austrian, but like German speaking, but not from Germany artist who made these like horrific dolls that, that I find incredibly interesting, but they would be like 10 legs and like, you know, they're very sexualized, but they would be these kind of strange inverted, you know, maybe slightly pedophilic uh, dolls that he would sort of uh, combine in, in really interesting ways. And so that word Belmer existed in the lexicon of this child because his parents are homeschooling him and teaching him that famous artists are almost saints and mystics. So he absorbs that and he finds this dead dog, which is killed by this kind of basically like Nazi gang of, of kids in the town called the boys boys and they murder this dog. And then the kid Jacob gets the dog and he like glues like a pigeon and a frog and different things to it. And he ends up taking it to this local museum called the town museum, uh, which is something I've always been interested in. Like I love small town museums and, you know, towns that have, like locally famous artists, there's something hugely appealing to me about that. You know, so, so those kinds of spaces, I just find intrinsically fascinating. So I wanted to have the town museum be like a, um, the central shrine in this book. And basically at that museum, this dog is seen by the, we, we don't know if she's the owner or the kind of manager, but the woman who runs it named Greta, she sees some promise in this dog or some, something about it makes her want to buy it for ten dollars so she does and then he's sort of wrapped up in what starts as the local art scene in this town but he becomes conflated with this older uh german artist who seems to live in the town who may or may not be a version of this kid but he sort of uh steps into a cycle that then takes over from there it's one of the aspects i find really interesting in this book the fact that jacob's parents we soon find out are pretty much making it up as they go along to make sure that he remains within this little cult. And they embody the Demiurge, right? In a way, they're, uh, they also don't have a rigid dogma. You know, it's like their dogma exists on a kind of meta level where the only rule they follow is that they have to keep making it up as they go along, right? Because for them, you know, the idea of Nazism isn't just like a German phenomenon, it's any insistence on an absolute reality, right? It's any sort of, you know, which exists in every culture and maybe even in every person, but it's basically an insistence that things have to be a certain way in any amount of violence and repression is justified to make them that way and keep them from being infiltrated or undermined, right? So from the parents' point of view, that's what Nazism is. And therefore, the only way to not be a Nazi is to continually make it up as you go along and say that there is no final form, right? So they're very skeptical of any kind of absolute dogma, whether Jewish or not, you know? And, and that to me, I, I think is, I'm, I'm not sure if I exactly espouse the same belief, but, but I kind of get it. You know, I want it to be somewhat sympathetic toward the parents, even though they're a tyrannical force and a kind of ironically tyrannical force because they're opposed to rigid dogmas and yet that opposition itself becomes a rigid dogma. You know what I mean? So I sort of like, I don't like the parents exactly, but I understand, them. I feel for them and like what position they're in. I didn't want it to be just obviously dumb. You know, I wanted there to be some sense of like pathos about where they're coming from, you know? And, and I think it's a deep question in terms of charting your own course as an artist also, because I think you do need a certain amount of, inner brutality and like inner 
absolutism where you're like, I have to do this. And it doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter how much rejection there is. It doesn't matter uh, how much the world resists my attempt to do it. If I really want to do it, I have to be like an absolute fanatic of doing it. So on the one hand, I think, I don't know if there's, I can't imagine any other way to do it. On the other hand, a certain amount of like mental uh, agility or a sense of ability to sort of go with the flow and like see where your work is going and not having too much of a predetermined ax to grind or a predetermined um, point you're trying to make is also really important, I think. You know, it's like the Apolline and the Dionysian and, and Nietzsche, right? But the sense of how you get the like really hard forces and the really soft forces in your own mind or in your own culture. I mean, I think it ramifies out on any level. It's like a fractal that's the same no matter how much you zoom in or out. Uh, but that balance to me is really important. And that's something I wanted to get at in the book, you know, that the parents are this kind of rigid order, but it's a rigid order against rigid orders. This is the first book I've read by you. And I've got quite a few more on my shelf to get into. What do you think I should pick up next? I think, so I have a couple different personae that I try to inhabit when I'm writing. So there's one which is more, which I often call David Leo, which is more, sounds funny to say it's more wholesome, but it's like a little bit more nostalgic. It's more wistful. It's more, has a kind of, it's more romantic, I think. And it relates. So there's something they actually talk about in the new house, but it's something that I often think about is this taxonomy of, I, I call it the taxonomy of the Jewish spirit. And I don't know that it has to be Jewish, but the way I explain it is Jewish, which is basically you have like a map of the world and it has the woods the desert and the city are the three main spaces and underneath all of them kind of animating them like a, you know, cooking them is the flames, right? So the, the flames of, you know, the burning bush can just emerge anywhere. It can emerge in the forest, could emerge in the desert, could emerge in the city. And, you know, so in the book, they break down different types of Jewish artists or writers who embody different corners of it, right? So someone like Isaac Bishop, a singer, Mark Chagall, uh, represents the forest, right? The idea of the homestead, kind of the pull of the old country, the, you know, the Haimisha world, right? The desert is more like the vagabond, the wandering spirit, you know, the book of Exodus. So that would be someone like Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan, this kind of classic uh, wanderer soul kind of, you know, turning loneliness and indeterminacy into a form of romance. And then the city is basically the world of neurosis and the world of kind of like hipness and, and uh, being a part of like urbane intellectual culture. So Freud would be the fundamental example of that or Woody Allen, someone like that. Anyway, the, the reason I bring that up is I think that a lot of my books kind of partake of a similar structure so that the David Leo ones, which I would say are the new house and angel house and actually both have house in the title are more about small towns. They're more about looking for home. They're more about the pull of history, right? Maybe they're more about family. The new house definitely is, angel house less so. But I think the two of those belong together. The other persona that I tend to oscillate between, I call Ravid Dice, which is more like the frenzy of the desert. And that's my room in Dodge City books. So those books have more of a 
kind of frantic humor to them or, or they have a slapstick quality and they're more grotesque and absurd and obscene. Uh, so that's a different mode. And then connecting them is the short stories. So I think of the short stories and the book's called Drifter, partly because I wanted that idea of drift between these different settled environments. Uh, but the spirit of the short story is more like the troubadour spirit or the, the vagabond spirit who goes town to town, you know? singing for a supper, that kind of thing. So it, depend, it depends kind of, if you want more like the new house, I would say read Angel House next. If you want something completely different, I would say start the Dodge City, or if you want to move between them, uh, start with Drifter. Okay, brilliant. What a great answer. What are you working on at the moment? A few things related to that. So I like the idea of building up a map the partly is a real world, right? So, so I've never been interested, I've never been as interested in outright fantasy or something that just takes place in a completely different world or that takes place in outer space or like that. I have nothing against it, but I'm not drawn toward it. So I like the idea that the type of fantastical writing that I do takes place on an actual world map. Often, often the map of America, but not, not only. I mean, I'm interested in other locations too. Uh, so what I'm working on right now uh, first of all, I have another book about David Cronenberg coming out this summer. So that's something I have been working on a lot that's like just wrapped up and that's almost out. Um, who's another of these kind of mystical Jewish figures. So in a way he, he fits into my taxonomy. Uh, so that's kind of wrapped up. In terms of new work, um, two things are supposed to come out next year, which is A Room in Dodge City Volume 3, which is the culmination of that trilogy. Uh, so the first two are out and the third one, I'm staring at it right now, actually. So it, I have a draft of it, but I need to keep refining it. Um, so that should come out next spring if I can get, get the timing right. Uh, and it's my probably most apocalyptic book or like most uh, highest instance of the flames erupting out of the desert. So I've been working on that. And then the next story collection uh, is supposed to come out next fall. And those stories are all the saga of the brothers Squimbop who show up in a lot of my books. So <laughs> a lot of those stories are out, but I think I have one more to do and then I have to bring them all together. Uh, and that should also come out with 11.11 in the fall of 2023. And basically the brothers Squimbop are this kind of hustler duo who embody different forms in different stories. So sometimes they're magicians, sometimes they're clowns, sometimes they're scam artists, sometimes they're kind of like political rabble rousers. Sometimes they're on the run. Sometimes they're serial killers. Uh, and there's basically different moments in which they are incarnated through media. So sometimes like they're impersonators of the earlier Squimbop stories or they're like people hired to play the brother Squimbop. So they're, you know, part of the tension of that book. I think all my books are probably about stable versus plural identity. But that book is maybe the most explicitly about that in that there's always this question of whether they're one or two, right? Are, are they really the brothers Squimbop or is there actually only one of them? And that changes depending on the story. And then the question of like, are they the real brother Squimbop or are they people playing this role? And is there ever any real one or is it always almost like a Commedia dell'arte kind of uh, archetypal, archetypal role? Um, and just as one last tie-in, those characters... Uh, exist in Angel House. So the actual thing called Angel House is an arc, almost like Noah's Ark, sailed by a singular character called Professor Squimbop. 
uh, and wherever it docks, wherever it dro- uh, drops anchor, a town sprouts up out of like the primordial muck at the bottom of the ocean. And that town becomes full of people who have memories of living in that town, even though they can feel that they're false. Right. So it plays with like Atlantis myths and some of the sense of like coming to a new world, but bringing the old world with you. Uh, anyway, that Professor Squimbop character is threaded into the Squimbop collection. So it's almost like an apocrypha of the canonical story from the previous novel. So it's more work of like threading my map together. Um, and there's a couple things after that, but that that's like the immediate horizon. Let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened doors of literature for you? Okay, so let's see. I tried to be somewhat chronological, which I'll probably fail at being perfectly so, but I thought I would go, I started in high school, you know? So as a child, probably pretty typical stuff, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, Redwall, uh, those types of, you know, midi- Lord of the Rings a little bit less so, but that kind of medieval fantasy expansive world was very exciting to me. So starting in high school, uh, this is probably also a somewhat typical story uh, for people who become writers, but I had just like a truly saintly freshman writing teacher. I mean, who was one of these people who it's hard not to believe in a higher power that that she emerged at the public high school in, in my town, you know, but somehow she did. Uh, and she took my friend and I, so I have a best friend who also, speaking of coincidences, was born on the same day as me, actually the, the night before, but he was the night of one day, I was the morning of the next, in the same hospital. And our mothers met then and have remained best friends until today. So he and I grew up as kind of a duo, which is part of why I'm interested in duos in my, in my books. Um, but we were both in this class in ninth grade and the teacher took the two of us aside. And I don't know what we did, but somehow she saw something in us or said, you know, I don't think you guys need to do this packet or whatever else was assigned. Uh, but instead you should read this book called Infinite Jest. So she gave us Infinite Jest. And this was 2001 because she was the one who announced 9-11. I can vividly remember being in her room and, you know, she got called away to the office or something and she came back and she just leveled it. You know, it was whatever it was, 9.50 something in the morning. So we didn't know what was going to happen yet, but she was like, look, a plane hit the tower. This is, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's real. This is what's happening. So I vividly remember being in her room at that moment. But that same fall, she gave us Infinite Jest, which must have been a couple years old at that point, right? I think it came out in the late nineties. Uh, and she said, instead of doing, any, I can't believe they let her do this, but she said, um, instead of doing any of the other work in this class, you guys could just read this and we'll meet once a week and discuss it. And she said, you're probably not gonna get it all. Uh, don't worry about it. Whatever you get out of it, we'll talk about. So I don't know, I, I feel like David Foster Wallace is a little bit, uh, maybe he's fallen out of favor. Or I don't know how I would feel if I read him now, but reading him when I was, 14, 15 at the, uh, not just with the permission, but with the encouragement of this teacher that my friend and I really looked up to really was a gateway experience. And it was the first time that we read like an adult book that really probably was too hard for us in a lot of ways. But the fact that she was like, I think you guys are going to get something from this was just so gratifying. And like, we just, you know, and we did get, if nothing else, we got that feeling from it. You know, and I remember like holding the copy and on the back, it said, um, there's a quote maybe from uh, Sven Berkertz or 
uh, you know, a prominent critic at that time that said, um, think Pynchon, think Gaddis, think. And I remember just seeing those names, you know, Pynchon and Gaddis, who, who I know have been discussed a lot uh, on the show. But I feel like there's often a phenomenon where you discover older things through newer things, just depending on like where you are in history. You know, so a way like a lot of kids probably hear about Martin Luther King before they've ever heard of Martin Luther, for example. Right. So in this case, Pynchon and Goddess came after Foster Wallace for me, even though they obviously came before in terms of actual history. Uh, but I can just remember meeting with her in the empty classroom with just my friend and, and her and like discussing that book. And I don't know, it was the first time that it felt both that something contemporary, you know, that we weren't reading To Kill a Mockingbird, we were reading something from the moment. And that it was, it almost like activated some form of puberty in us. Like it made us, made our minds like flower in a way that I don't think would have happened for a number of years more had we not read it at that time. So that's why I would definitely call that a gateway book. Um, so that's one. Also in high school was the Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson, which is just nuts. It's totally insane. I, I love the Illuminatus Trilogy which is kind of like a dirtier, pulpier, trashier, more insane, druggier Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, and it came out, I think around the same time, somewhere in the seventies or maybe late sixties. And it's just like obscene to some degree that blew my mind when I was 15, you know? And I don't know that if it's like good exactly, but by any conventional metric, uh, but it was so ambitious and it had just such a, overwhelming amount of you know political conspiracies metaphysical conspiracies like drugged out like nonsense like extreme sex just like weird sort of mythic violence like it just was this world where it felt like a grab bag of uh like siren songs pulling me in different directions and stuff that just felt so adult um and so kind of taboo but in a way that just felt like really cool and it made me feel like I had this deep secret and I ordered it I don't know I guess I don't know if Amazon I don't think Amazon existed I ordered it from some used book depot this would have been like 2002 maybe there was early Amazon I don't know but I ordered it from somewhere and it came and it was like stained and it just <laughs> felt like I was like had entered some kind of seedy underworld um, and I've always loved seediness I think that's actually something that Paul from Wake Island and I have in common. And like I had written an essay about seediness as an aesthetic that resonated with him. And I think it's something that I've always just loved and like the sense of, you know, seediness, both in the sense of like sleaziness and seeminess, but also in the sense of unsprouted seed in the sense that like there's some potential here that is being wasted or is being overlooked. Uh, and that book, the Illuminatus trilogy, like really, really had that, you know, and it just felt so like it coursed through me in this way and it had a, like a weird form of humor that, that I found really amazing. And I don't know, I mean, Gravity's Rainbow is better according to any kind of metric that, that you could probably devise. But that book, I would say, cut me deeper at the time when I read it. Um, so that that's that related to it in terms of books where it makes it seem like all of reality is not what it seems is Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco that I also read, maybe that was 11th grade, but around that time. Um, and my family has always spent a lot of time in Italy. My parents, after they got married in the seventies, uh, lived in these people's barn in this valley in Tuscany, like just north of Florence. And they've always gone back to stay with those people. So when I was growing up and my brother was growing up, uh, 
we would stay with those people too. And so I've always had this attraction to like Italian churches and catacombs and just that kind of ominous mysteries of Catholicism. And so Umberto Eco reading him in high school, like just gelled with all these, again, atmosphere, you know, in the sense of just like the smell of the cement and the stone and like the light coming through the stained glass. And, you know, as an outsider, something about just the like sense of secrets buried in the Vatican or buried in, you know, the entire edifice of the Catholic church uh, was so overwhelming to me. And someone like Humberto Eco, I actually just read Name of the Rose recently, but reading uh, Foucault's Pendulum in high school just blew that stuff up for me in, in a really exciting way. You know, and I think, you know, I've always had an interest in the occult and I actually majored in what ended up being, calling, uh, ended up being called esoteric studies in college, uh, which we could talk about, but I did a made like a kind of um, special concentration that I could put together on those topics. But I think like being in those Italian churches and then reading Umberto Eco definitely uh, predisposed me in that direction. So there's definitely that. Now we're getting towards college. So in college, the first, actually right before college, I took a gap year and I spent the first half in Australia. And when I was in Australia, I became obsessed with Murakami. And he's someone who, again, I don't know how I'd feel about it if I discovered now, but when I was 19, Wind Up Bird Chronicle, living in Sydney, just completely absorbed me in a way that almost nothing else ever has. And I think there it's the feeling of a world within this world or a feeling of the idea that you could enter a real space like a well or a subway tunnel or a hotel hallway and sort of end up in this alternate space. You know, it's a little bit like psychedelics, you know, which were very important to me in high school. But the idea that there's like, you don't have to go somewhere else. You can go to some other version of this reality. And dreams are that way too, right? I mean, dreams are doubly that way in the sense that you're both just physically in your bed, probably like the most familiar space to you in, in some way. And the imagery in the dream is on, on some level things that you've seen in the waking world that you're refiltering into some kind of other world, right? So it's like, you know, I've always been interested in uh, the uncanny, both in terms of like Freud's essay, but also just as a concept, the idea of like your home that's not your home or yourself that's not yourself or, you know, yourself that's your double. Uh, or, you know, in, in the case of Wind Up Bird Chronicle, like a vision of Tokyo that's also some kind of nightmare scape or some kind of uh, world of dark temptations. Wind Up Bird Chronicle just really gave me that. And I think also, actually I went to Tokyo the next year not literally like seeking Murakami, but partly trying to find that atmosphere and maybe actually found it less than I did when I was in Sydney, partly because it was a fantasy space, but being in Sydney felt, you know, it was closer to Asia than I had been before, right? Or it felt, you know, you could tell that you were on that side of the world in a way that uh, it's just different being in the US, right? So uh, I really went deeply down the Murakami rabbit hole. And I think also, it was the first time living in Sydney was the first time I'd been alone in a big city without any family or, you know, there are people who I met, but without any like pre-existing friends. And I think the feeling of myself as just like a lone entity kind of wandering around and being kind of broke and like looking at all these places that I couldn't go into, or I wasn't dressed for, or like I didn't have any invitation to, that feeling of just being kind of a wandering outsider 
that you get a lot like in uh, Sartre's Nausea or Notes from Underground, that kind of archetype. I also felt reading Murakami at that time, you know, and just this feeling of being kind of at odds with the city that you're in, but sensing that there's like a mystery city just down the alley or just, you know, if you could get up to the second floor of the building or something like that, or down into the basement. Uh, so he, you know, really sparked that in me at that time. Uh, let's see. So after that, uh, after my first year of college, actually, when I then went to Tokyo, the biggest influence on me then, which is maybe kind of a cliche, but is a uh, hundred years of solitude. I mean, I can't not list that. And I think there too is actually the same idea of turning your own town into a mythic space or into some space that's imbued with like what you feel about it made into something literal, right? It's what people say about Kafka a lot of this idea of literalizing the subtext. Right. So there's some sense in which you feel in your town, there's all these dark secrets or there's all these curses or there's all these um, legacy of some circus that passed through and enchanted something. Or, you know, it's like this kind of gothic, uh, magical realist feeling that Faulkner took from Marquez and vice versa. You know, each of them kind of influenced the other. Uh, although Marquez wrote his biggest things later. So I suppose he'd be more influenced. Anyway, 100 Years of Solitude at that time. I think actually was the beginning of what became Angel House, right? So Angel House, which I didn't write until after college, but was like my attempt to respond to the feeling of hundred years of solitude. So that, you know, really lodged like very, very deep inside me. Um, okay, so the next gateways would be, speaking of Italy, we had this very close, almost like a grandfather figure, but this older man who, so he wasn't a monk exactly, but he, had a monastic quality and that he always lived alone and had a lot of connections to monasteries and would sort of always be like staying at different churches and had a little bit of like an air of mystery about him. He was one of my first real mentors and like literary uh, signals who sort of like saw that I could respond to things and like wanted to pull me deeper into a kind of European world of letters. Um, and he was an amazing guy. It was really interesting that he spoke basically no English at all. So like he would come to visit us in Massachusetts and you know he couldn't order a cup of coffee, like literally nothing. But I would give him my stories in English and he would read them and comment on them in Italian in a very incisive way. So he could read English at a very, very deep level. Um, he just didn't or, or wouldn't speak it. But so we had these intense literary conversations in Italian and he turned me on to um, Master and Margarita and The Magic Mountain. So those two books were really important to him. And I think he thought I would enjoy them or he hoped I would enjoy them. And I did, you know, so talking to him about Bogakov and the world of like the Russian fantastic and this sort of, it's not exactly magical realism, but almost this kind of um, mythic absurdism. You know, in both of those books, Master and Margarita and Magic Mountain, both have a kind of mystical Christian theme. You know, so he's someone through whom I absorbed a lot of understanding of the mystical dimension of Christianity that I don't think I would have had otherwise. So he was like a really important figure in that way. So talking about Master Margarita and, the, and actually years later, I went to Moscow and I saw a lot of um, Bulgakov's places where he lived in a lot of uh, sites from Master Margarita. So it was interesting to have those places come to life at that point. He probably turned me on to Gogol also. And then the Magic Mountain, 
that was his favorite book. And he, he sort of compared himself to Settembrini, who's the sort of Italian intellectual in the Magic Mountain. So now, you know, this man has died. But when I think of Settembrini, I picture him in a kind of sly, like smiling kind of way. Uh, and I think that book partly was important for turning me on to German literature, which is uh, part of what I majored in in college. And I lived in Germany after college. Uh, and also the sense of basically like sanitarium literature or like literature about people being in the world, but outside of it, you know, being in these kind of zones of exception, right? So the Magic Mountain was really important to me. Years later, I read uh, The Tatar Steppe by Dino Buzzati and The Balcony in the Forest by Julian Grock. So Italian and French novels that have a similar quality of uh, this like deliciously rotten sense of waiting, you know, and characters, often young men sort of waiting for their life to begin and fearing that they're already missing it, you know, and that tension, which you have throughout the Magic Mountain is just like immensely deep and kind of um, just uh, stir stirs something like pain. It's like a sore that you can't help probing, right? And I think one other thing with the Magic Mountain is throughout college, I worked for a British filmmaker who was a visiting professor in, in my animation class who lives in the Netherlands. And I spent a couple summers with him in the Netherlands working on a film about Daniel Paul Schreber, who was a German judge and pretty high, almost like a Supreme Court justice in the late 1800s, who had a complete and total nervous breakdown at a certain point and was confined to a series of mental asylums. And when he was in the mental asylum, he wrote what's become a kind of famous book, a kind of memoir. It's called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, which was the basis for the film that we made. And in that book, he talks a lot about uh, what he calls cosmic rays, rays that were like coming through the universe and penetrating his skin and were sort of remotely basically like what we would now call remote control, but we're sort of changing his nervous system and changing his thoughts and, you know, all the stuff about rays. But at the same moment that he was writing about this in the 1890s was the beginning of the use of x-rays. So it was a real thing. And in the Magic Mountain, you have this famous moment where the love interest, Frau Schauschat, gets an x-ray of her lung that shows her disease, like the reason why she can't breathe. Uh, she has as an x-ray and it becomes this kind of erotic object that the Hans, the main character, sort of cherishes this slide of like the internal disease. But I think that idea of um, the inside of the body becoming visible was very uh, poignant and, and kind of interesting to me as a signal of the turn of the century in the beginning of what would become the 20th century, you know, in which I and most people were born, you know, so like that, something about the importance of x-rays uh, relates to my feelings about the Magic Mountain. Uh, okay, so the last two that I have here, actually three that I have here. So the next is Philip Roth, who, who I definitely couldn't not include. So I think the two that I would put for him are uh, Sabbath's Theater and American Pastoral. And I think really all of his 90s work is, is like the high point for me. Um, but Sabbath's Theater, because to me, that's like the seediest book I know. So in terms of seediness and also in terms of puppets, like I love puppets and I love kind of, you know, circuses and traveling shows and mimes and that whole world. But Sabbath's Theater, which, you know, that the theater itself is this kind of traveling puppet theater, 
uh, I just found incredibly appealing as a character, even in this really gross and kind of, um, you know, he's just like a deeply seedy kind of character, uh, but there's something beautifully rendered by Roth about that character. And then American Pastoral is like his great historical book, I think, or like the book in which his like ability to be truly serious reached its high point. Just as Sabbath's Theater, I would say, is the high point of his ability to be truly scabrous and the ability to do both of those things, either in one book or from book to book, is just extremely impressive to me. Um, so that's Roth. In terms of other galvanizing Jewish thinkers, uh, who someone who shows up in the new house at least once is Harold Pinter. So I think uh, when I was in college, I went to just like a student production of Old Times and The Birthday Party, not quite back to back, but like within the same semester. And I hadn't heard of them at all. And I was a little bit, I never had anything against theater, but like growing up, like the world of sort of community theater, like I never saw anything that I was that excited about, you know except um, The Pillow Man by Martin McDonough, which I saw on Broadway. That, that really spoke to me. But then in college, see, seeing Harold Pinter's plays and just getting the sense of the way that language could be used as a weapon and the way that people could sort of fight over each other's pasts and like convince each other of things that seemingly never happened and, and kind of bully each other into accepting a sham reality was, was so, it like really made my hair stand on it. And the, something about the particular language that he was able to write in, you know, that was so funny and so scary at the same time. And just, you know, I think his plays are often called uh, comedies of menace, but the way that like comedy and menace combined, I just found shockingly powerful, you know? So I, I've always loved Pinter since then. Although I don't think I've ever been to a performance that was more moving than those ones in college, you know, so. I mean, it, uh, one often can't get back to those moments, but like the effect that Pinter had on me uh, was really primary. And then the last thing that I have on here uh, for Gateway books is, which I feel like is a good title for a gateway, uh, The Open Curtain by Brian Evanson. Um, so Brian Evanson, uh, who uh, I would consider a mentor and has become a friend over the years, was like an incredibly strong open curtain uh, into the world of contemporary literature. Right, and I think it's probably a transition that almost all writers make at a certain point away from the past or away from, you know, sort of bestsellers like Murakami into a more specific niche or into a world that's more can become their world, you know? So, so I graduated college, I went to Berlin for a year uh, where I was working on Angel House. And then when I came back, that's when I was TAing the animation class. So that would be 2012. And that year I discovered Evanson somehow, maybe through the believers. I read something about it that sounded interesting. Uh, you know, and I've always been interested in like religious cults and religious uh, violence and, you know, Gothic sensibility. So, you know, he was up my alley, but I never heard of him before. And I think at first I read was Fugue State and then The Open Curtain. And he really changed my whole world. I mean, the idea that like people were doing that right now and that there was maybe, it was a kind of discourse that I could find my own way to participate in was super galvanizing. And I think like every writer needs that. They need someone who's like actually alive and like actually doing things in their moment in order to 
begin to understand what the moment is always for them. You know, so for me, that was a real like night and day moment. And then I think the way I started publishing stories was I just looked at one of his collections uh, and I went through the back to see where the, his stories had been published. And I just sent my stories to all those places and just kept doing it over the years. And like that, that was what I needed to find, you know, so that made a huge difference. And, you know, I was so excited to read The Open Curtain, you know, and I, and I love his work ongoingly, but like that was where it began. Um, yeah, so I think that that's probably good for for gateways. One of the things I love about your website is the fact you keep track of all the things you're reading. Do you want to tell us some of the books that you've recently read, or you're currently reading, or you're looking forward to? Yeah, so let's see. The two books that I finished most recently, I tend to read two at a time. Uh, the two that I finished most recently are uh, J.M. Kutsia's Childhood of Jesus, which I think is pretty interesting. I, I love Kutsia, you know, and his earlier work, like, you know, obviously Disgrace and um, uh, Life and Times of Michael Kay, I think it's really great. And Faux. Childhood of Jesus is interesting. It's definitely kind of a gamble in terms of a later project that, you know, it's a trilogy. So I can't claim to know what the full story is, but it feels very different. It's much more stripped down. It's more of a kind of, has a kind of cryptic, it almost feels like a children's book. I mean, it's about a child, but it has, it's written in this sort of cryptic fable style where you always feel like you're missing something, I think by design, but like there's something around the edges that it's kind of hinting at. Uh, and it just very gently, almost like steer, it's almost like a um, boat ride down a foggy river. And you can sort of glimpse things around the edges, but it never quite stops and it just drifts along, uh, which I found very interesting, but I'm not sure I could really say what it what it's about on on a first read you know or, or like the fullness of what it's about um, but i was very intrigued by it the other one that i just read is uh last letter to a reader by gerald murnane um and one of his books is going to be in my in my top 10 but uh last letter to a reader is essentially him as an older man rereading all of his books i think it's something he did over the pandemic uh, rereading all of his books in order and writing an essay about how it struck him now, you know, which becomes a kind of autobiography. And then he talks a little bit about just where he was at when he was writing it. But it's also like a very interesting kind of critical theory book about his own uh, corpus of literature. Uh, so, you know, it's maybe like a kind of for fans only in terms of being very much being very self-referential about the other books by design but uh but i loved it and he's someone i just could never read enough of um so i really enjoyed those two uh let's see i just started dostoevsky's demons um because some friends wanted to read it and it felt like a good moment in terms of you know the air feeling heavy with uh political ideology and and nation violence so demon seems like a good book for this moment it actually relates to katia because katia wrote the book uh, master of petersburg kind of about it's a lo loosely related, but about some of the situations uh, around the book, around what became Demons. So it, um, I'm interested to get into that. I love Dostoevsky, but I haven't read any of his big books since college. So I'll, I'll see if it, if it takes, but, but I hope it will. Um, other than that, let's see. I recently read The Tenant by Roland Topor that was made into a Polanski film. Uh, and I was really impressed by that. That's another... Uh, Jewish horror novel, essentially. I mean, Topor, not sure where, I think he was probably in occupied France, I, I believe. I may be getting this wrong, but I think he was in occupied France, but basically the images in the tenant of like demonic forces 
pounding on the door trying to pull the tenant out of the apartment came from his own childhood of, of hiding from the Nazis and, and I think seeing his parents taken away, same as Polanski. So he, he and Polanski have that in common, uh, although Polanski was obviously in Poland. Um, but reading The Tenant you know, really has this deeply blood-curdling sort of visceral horror about just trying to not get taken out of your apartment. Uh, and it, it's one of those books that goes out of print fairly often and luckily has been republished. Uh, so the edition I have doesn't have this, but I saw an older edition has a foreword by Thomas Legati, who's someone who's also been very important to me, you know, and his Legati's whole world of um, derelict carnivals and kind of small towns ruled by various forms of occult magic and sort of the place where like politics and the other worldly meet is uh, something that I've really gotten from Legati. And so I think seeing his, I mean, I, I knew about the film from before, but seeing Legati's foreword to the, older edition of The Tenant made me seek out the new one. Uh, so that's a really interesting book and one that uh, because it seems to go out of print often, uh, people should just get now if, if you're interested in reading it. Uh, so th those are ones that I've read recently. I read Evanson's new collection, uh, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, uh, which is really great. I mean, I, you really can't go wrong with him. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I also recently read Augustus by John Williams because um, I love Stoner and I often assign Stoner and, and teach it in class. So I read Augustus, which it turns out was written in Northampton in my hometown, uh, which always endears me to things. But Augustus is kind of a, I think it's relatively accurate, but it's basically all apocryphal journal entries and letters surrounding Augustus Caesar in, you know, 40 BC about, right? So, you know, Julius Caesar is assassinated and then Augustus ends up becoming the next emperor. And it's about that moment of political turmoil. Um, and, you know, it gets into sort of mystery cults and like different, uh, increasingly uh, suspenseful and, and kind of um, crazy things happening around Rome at that time. So that that's a, that's a great book. That's really interesting. And then in terms of things I'm looking forward to reading, uh, I have Otessa Moshfeg's new book, La Pavona. I, I love all of her work. So I'm excited about that. It looks like kind of a different, different world and a different scene for her. So that, that, uh, we'll probably be up next. Um, I recently got Sleepwalk by Dan Sean. Uh, I think he's a really, a really interesting kind of suspense and horror writer. Uh, and Sleepwalk seems to be kind of a Philip K. Dick inspired novel. So that, that looks really cool. And then I'm already starting to ideate a bit about the next novel after the things that are are in progress. And I want it to have a little bit of a kind of financial corporate spy horror quality to it. Uh, so I'm slowly starting to read a few books in that world. So I picked up A Perfect Spy by John Le Carre, which, which I've never read. Uh, but I, I think Philip Roth said it was his favorite book, his favorite book since World War II. Uh, so I'm intrigued to read that. And um, the last one on here is Trust by Hernan Diaz. Uh, so Hernan Diaz wrote a book a few years ago called uh, In the Distance that I really loved. It was one of my favorite books of whatever it was, 2017 or 18, um, about a Swedish immigrant who gets lost in America. And it's just this very kind of like hallucinatory, it's like the movie Dead Man a little bit by, by Jim Jarmusch. It's this very like hallucinatory sort of wandering adventure through America. Uh, and his new novel Trust is sort of, seems to be about um, like Gilded Age New York and, and kind of financial malfeasance of different kinds. 
uh, I'm sure like playing on both meanings of the word trust. Uh, so I'm interested to read that, but, but I haven't checked it out yet. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with David Leo Rice. This episode is sponsored by TikTok. Are you sick of giving away all your data to billionaires in California? Why not give it back to the people? That's right, the people in the People's Republic of China. Join TikTok today. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for David's Top 10. Okay, so the top 10, uh, which relate to the gateways, it's sort of hard to perfectly separate them. Um, But number one, the book that I always just put as my favorite book is Street of Crocodiles by Bruno Schultz. Uh, So there's really no way I I cannot pick that. I mean, I think his whole world of, you know, Jewish magic and and kind of horror and longing in a small town was like the genesis of a lot of different things that I've done. Um, So I I love his stories. I I discovered them, I think, my first year in college, along with the Quay Brothers animation of Street of Crocodiles, of the story from that collection, uh, which led me into the whole world of that type of... uh, occult stop motion animations, the Quay brothers, Jan Schwankmeyer and, and on and on from there. Uh, so that that's ground zero for me. I, I, I love that unconditionally. Um, next one I put is The Famished Road by Ben Okri, a Nigerian novelist that is a little bit like 100 Years of Solitude, but it's like this grandiose epic about what he calls a spirit child, who's this little boy who can kind of move freely between the world of the dead and the world of the living, uh, which probably Jacob actually is, is a little bit indebted to that character. Uh, and the whole universe of the Famished Road is, is fantastic and just builds this kind of incredibly febrile, sort of half hallucinatory, half like starkly realistic portrait of a Nigerian town that I just think is an amazing book. Um, so that would be number two. Uh, they're not really in order, but uh, the next would be Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner. Um, so I, yeah, I can't not put Faulkner. Faulkner is, I also discovered in college and really blew my mind. And just the idea that I think he put in one of his books, the feeling that the begats from the Old Testament are never over. You know, that concept, the idea that like the Bible doesn't refer to some other time in some other space, but refers to now you know, has a kind of ominous implication, but also I found just incredibly exciting in, in the way that Faulkner wrote. And, and just something about his style made me feel like America could never cease to be interesting. And that some of the like dirtiest and grossest and like most shameful things about it were just filled with this kind of intrigue. We're just like subjects that were worth thinking about infinitely, right? So Faulkner really did that for me. And, you know, to really elevate language in this very American idiom and like American setting, but to like the highest levels of what English is capable of. Uh, so Absalom, Absalom is, is that, you know, beyond anything else for me. The next would be Alan Moore's From Hell, right? So I love From Hell. I know uh, some other people on, on here have talked about Moore, so I don't have to talk about him at all. But uh, From Hell, I just love the idea of using Jack the Ripper as a kind of trans-dimensional entity or someone who's like embodied in human form, but is really from beyond, is from hell, you know, and the way, like the seriousness with which the book treats that 
and the way that it treats the geography of London as this sort of maze space or, or you know, dark labyrinth, I was just incredibly intrigued by. And the whole world of psychogeography that a lot of London writers seem, seem to be into uh, resonates with me. You know, I think a lot of my work starts with geography, right? So that, uh, and architecture, my, my mom's an architect. So there's a lot of stuff in From Hell about Hawksmoor and also the book Hawksmoor by uh, Peter Ackroyd is really great. But, you know, all of those kind of geometric, geographical and architectural concerns grafted onto the occult and From Hell were, you know, put it in my top 10. Uh, so the next would be The Plains by Gerald Murnane, uh, also geographical. Right, also about you know the mind as space, right, and the space as mind. So the way that he literally is talking about uh, actually near near you, right, the state of Victoria and in Australia, but then turning those planes into a mental space. And the way he'll talk about you know the east of my mind or the west of my mind or you know some valley beyond the edge of my fiction or something. Those things just I find incredibly exciting and and really specific and, and relate, I think, to the interest in outsider art in, in the new house, you know, and someone like Murnane on the one hand is like quite famous and like seems like he wants to be to a degree, but at the same time has really cut out his own space and his own world and his own kind of, uh, he's made his eccentricities work for him in a way that's really interesting and, and admirable to me. The next I would put is The Fifth Child by Doris Lessing. Uh, which I just reread recently. I read it for the first time, maybe, I don't know, seven years ago. Uh, and it's just so scary. And somehow the way that she talks about this fifth child being like a throwback or a revenant or something within the human gene pool that kind of emerges again, you know, has a very classic uh, like mythological dimension to it. But the way that she presents it as like specifically real is just masterfully done to me, you know, and, and some of the scenes that she builds, like anyone who's read the book, I think will know, will know the scene, but there's one scene within it that really is just one of the bleakest and, and most abysmal moments that, that I've read in anything, which is not easy to do. You know, I, I mean, I've read a lot of like really grotesque things, but there's a certain moment in the fifth child that scrapes some level of horror that uh, I think is singular, you know, so I would put it there for many reasons, but maybe specifically for that reason. Um, so the next one, so I've always had an interest in Japanese literature and I studied Japanese before I studied German. And, you know, so I love Murakami, although Murakami is often considered at least by Japanese writers to be kind of secretly American, right? Or to sort of be written for translation. And he translates English, right? So he's, you know, maybe by, by his own admission, you know, more influenced by like Raymond Chandler or F. Scott Fitzgerald, or, you know, there's something kind of Western facing about Murakami's work, whereas uh, Mishima is the opposite, right? I mean, he's a kind of extreme Japanese nationalist in a way. And I think the Mishima film by Paul Schrader is like really interesting and weird and, you know, worth thinking about in this moment too, as, as these kind of forces come back. Uh, but the Mishima novel that I would, that I would pick here is uh, The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea, which is pretty short. It's like a little bit more than a novella, but a very short novel. And it just... Maybe it's almost the opposite of the, the Jewish experience, like the Japanese experience of being so rooted to one specific place and like having always been in that place in some sense. Um, but this sort of tension between the sea, you know, in the story of the sailor and like the, 
the land and, and being rooted in Japan is so intense and like reaches a point of just such like violent madness in that book that uh, I just find it amazing. You know, and I think writers who embody the contradictions that they write about are often the most interesting to me. You know, so someone like Mishima who, you know, is so rigidly kind of like fascistically brutal in his vision of absolutism and, you know, dignity and honor and all of this stuff, but who's also such an esthete and so kind of uh, open to the beauty of the world in, in this very gentle and kind of, you know, dreamy way. And the sense of like how he combined those things is so particular and seemed to like torment him and, you know, maybe drove him to suicide, but produced these just like incredibly strange and, and resonant books. And I think The Sailor Who Fell From Grace is the best, at least of the standalone ones. Um, I love Kobo Abe also as a Japanese author, um, but for me, he's more intellectual, whereas Mishima like has this just really fraught and kind of heavy emotional quality that, uh, that really moves me. Okay, so the last couple, uh, Sea Under Love by David Grossman, uh, who's an Israeli novelist, uh, who I think I read in Berlin. And that book also was extremely influential on The New House. And it's sort of about, it's actually about Bruno Schultz in certain ways. Like there's a whole section of it where Bruno Schultz is, in a manner of speaking, becomes a character. But it also has this child in Tel Aviv in the 50s after, after the Holocaust. And the way that Grossman writes about this child trying to come to terms with what happened, I just found incredibly moving. You know, and there's this, this moment in it where, you know, like their grandfather and various people who survived come to Tel Aviv to live with the family. And the little kid is like, sees that they're just completely broken and traumatized and like can't speak. And, you know, like obviously. Uh, and so he asked his parents, you know, what happened to these people? And his parents said, you know, the Nazi beast got to them. And he says, well, what's the Nazi beast? And they say, well, it's a monstrous form that can emerge from any living thing. You know, any living thing can give birth to the Nazi beast. And he says like, well, like anything, like, like anything at all. And his parents say, yeah, anything at all. So the kid goes around the neighborhood and captures like a turtle and a rabbit and, you know, a worm or like different animals. And he makes a zoo in the basement and he starts like poking them and, and just sitting with these animals trying to induce the Nazi beast so he can ask it what it did to his grandfather, you know, and that image of just like how horrifying that is and how innocent it is and just how uh, Grossman wove those two threads together into that image you know, really stuck with me and, and is like all over the new house. Like the influence of that book is, you know, is huge for me. His other books are great too, but like that's the one that, that really stuck with me. Okay, so two more. So the second to last, number nine, is uh, the stories of Stephen Milhauser, right? So he's someone who, I don't know if he quite gets, gets the recognition he deserves, uh, but he's a great writer. He's a really great American writer uh, who's probably most famous for writing a story called Eisenheim, the illusionist that the movie, the illusionist was based on. Um, and that's a great story, but all of his stories, which are collected in a book called we others is like a one volume kind of best of collection. Uh, but all of his stories are, I just find incredibly interesting and they deal with, you know, magicians and sort of small town mysteries and just this like very poignant yearning for transcendence from within a very banal American setting. You know, he's sort of like half John Cheever and half Bishop Singer, you know, and like that mixture to me is, is really interesting and, and intoxicating, you know, and he's very, 
he even has a book called The Story of an American Dreamer, but he's just really, there's a way in which he embodies this sort of beauty and sadness of constantly dreaming that magic could be real that I find very moving. He writes about circuses and just a lot of the things that I really like, I can find in his stories. So, so I go back to them a lot. Uh, and then the last one that I would put on here is Jakob von Guten by uh, Robert Fosser. So we've talked about him a little bit, but he's another, a little bit like Murnane, kind of very high level outsider type writer or someone who like really had his own world and his own mythology and his own way of writing, right? If you look at his typescripts, like they're written in this kind of microscopic um, cipher almost you know he wrote in like this incredibly specific way but the book Jakob von Guten is actually where Jacob in the in my book is named after uh and there was also a Quay Brothers film I think a slightly less successful one but a Quay Brothers film based on that novel uh and just the whole world of that novel the kind of strange rituals and this like the beauty and the decrepitude of Germany at that time appeals to me. Like, I think I've always been sort of seeking some mystery of just like what makes Germany tick and like why is Germany the way it is and like what's interesting about it and what's horrifying about it. Uh, and Jacob Van Kooten is, is a book that I think just touches on that in a very gentle way. Like it's not polemical or even especially intellectual, but it just has this quality of expressing like the strange nature of a certain culture at a certain time in a way that's really resonant for me. Um, and I discovered him when I was in the Netherlands working on this film about Daniel Poschreber, because uh, at that time, this is kind of a secret, uh, sneaking in number 11, but at that time I got really into um, W.G. Zabalt, uh, a more contemporary German writer, but he writes a lot about Robert Walser. So at that time, uh, Walser like, appealed to me as this kind of lost, sort of very gentle soul who... You know, he was already well-known, but I felt a little bit like I was on the trail of someone who had disappeared as I was getting into him. And that feeling of like slowly coming to discover something in your own time is really, is really powerful. And I think even if it requires tricking yourself a little bit, sometimes it's worth it to tell yourself that you're the one discovering something if you get more out of it that way. What a fantastic list. Thank you. We should probably wrap it up. Before we do, do you want to tell us where we can listen to your podcast, where we can go and get your books, and where we can reach out to you and get in touch with you online? Absolutely. Um, so my website, we're actually working on redesigning it now, but it, it will remain up at the same link, uh, and the old one is still up now, is raviddice.com. So it's like David Rice, but with the R and the D switched. So R-A-V-I-D-D-I-C-E. Com. I'm also Raven Dice on Twitter uh, and everything's there. So there's links to the podcast, which is called Wake Island, which you can find in you know, anywhere you listen to podcasts. The links to the books are there. Uh, short stories are there. The Squimbop stories are being serialized in the Southwest Review. So you, you can look them up through that. Uh, yeah, but pretty much I tried to make it like a one-stop shop that anything you, you could be looking for is always going to be at RavenDice.com. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thanks once again to David Leo Rice. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode next week.